0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Abram Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to For us, talking about food scientifically. I'm here with Ephraim Schachter, who is a food scientist. Let's get down to our, <laughs> let's satisfy our appetites right away. Prime, Hi, Rabbi. Yes, hi. You're a young fellow and, you know, your familiarity with sushi is probably pretty strong. Probably even when you were a teenager, sushi was standard. I remember when the idea of sushi was something strange. Uh, it, it's 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 really one has to marvel how prevalent sushi is. I'm, I'm sure both of us have attended weddings where almost the highlight of the shmorg is the sushi table. It, it's really incredible. I, I think it, it got to the point that chop liver <laughs> whoever wants that <laughs> right chop, like, like, throw that out sushi right and i it's it's, it's really incredible that how much of a smorg item it is and how with so many people it's 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 almost better than the main course to the point where i can't even think about how many weddings i've
1: come back from and the first question people ask me is was there sushi at the shmorg?" <laughs>
0: uh-huh. <laughs> and and, you know, uh, my daughter, of course, is vegetarian. And for her, you know, that's, that, that's really the key thing of winning because uh, everything else is, 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 uh, is, is primarily, um, either meat or fish. You know, it, it boggles the mind almost how we have adapted to it. And it's become so standard.
1: And I wonder if, you know, if Jewish people are more obsessed with sushi than others in the US <laughs> because you really don't see, I mean, from speaking to non Jews, having sushi at a non Japanese restaurant is really not common so much outside of the Jewish community. And I don't know if that's because we are just way more obsessed than everyone else in the US <laughs> with sushi, or if that's because we just don't have as many restaurants. And so we can't afford to have a Japanese restaurant on, uh, every corner
0: yeah i, I think we're just trying to say prime is is that i guess the the eatery like the pizza shop says oh we look sushi's so big we better have a section here where you can get sushi if you want right. uh and, and and almost every large uh kosher grocery store that has takeout food you're going to have um you know sushi uh let's let's keep with weddings just for a minute because i noticed when i went with my daughter to a wedding that you know and, and she was you know scrounging for something to eat like we went back out and we saw the sushi that had been sitting out there for a couple of hours and we know sushi does have a tendency to sit out what should we be concerned about from uh, from a food science perspective about sushi sitting out
1: so sushi is actually a great example when talking about the fact that food safety is not binary it's not either really safe or unsafe but it's a spectrum so Ultimately, what it's going to, co- going to come down to is somebody's, an individual's tolerance level. The general recommendation for raw fish is to not let it sit out for more than two hours. And as you know, at various events that you go to, could be weddings, could be other, other, but very often you'll have sushi sitting out for for more than that amount of time. Hopefully not, but it definitely happens. And at that point, I would say someone with a little bit of a more sensitive stomach should stay away from it. But you see people who can just sort of eat; it seems almost anything and um, and be fine. That is real. That there are differences between people. Uh, so,
0: so we should we should be concerned after the two hour mark. You know, in preparation for this conversation, uh, I sent you an article from the, edited by my my good friend C. Rosen from the Star K. And uh, it was in the Kashrus currents of winter 2022, and people, uh, our listeners, can can find it there on the Case website. Very interesting piece. One of the things that 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 I saw there, you know, the Kashrus concern is what has the sushi been soaked in? Because in order to even be imported into this country, the United States has certain standards, and it seems to be from what was written there by this by the rabbi from South Africa who's involved in this sushi production. He says that it's soaked in a usually some sort of, it's either some sort of liquid powder, something that is able to help preserve it. You know, what I'm talking about here is the fish primarily that the fish has this, this, this element that helps it pass. Do you think that that could that, could that help the fact that the fish is all the fish that's being imported raw, though it might be, there's still an aspect of preservation that's connected to it.
1: So when it comes to meat or fish in general and the safety of it, the first point of concern is bacterial growth on the meat. And the part of the meat and or fish um, that we would most be concerned is the part that has contact with the air because that's where the bacteria will come from. And so with these food grade sterilizers that they're using on the surface of the fish, that's not really going to soak in so much into the fish. All that's going to do is prevent spoilage on the surface. It's another reason why, by the way, we, for ground meat, where the outside has been pushed into the inside and it's all mixed up and the bacteria is throughout, it lasts for much less time than a full muscle would. And why you need to cook ground meat to a higher temperature for it to be safe than you would need to cook. A
0: solid hunk of meat. So I guess what you're trying to say is, is that even though the outer layer is immersed in whatever this agent is, and it is like a firming agent and a flavor enhancer, it doesn't necessarily penetrate to the point that when it starts being processed uh, by at the neighborhood restaurant, that every little piece of that fish is going to be is going to have that that, that aspect to it.
1: Right. It, it wouldn't. And that firming agent and flavor enhancer would not actually be from whatever the food grade sterilizer is, but it could be if they were adding other things to that food grade sterilizer, then it could have uh, that effect.
0: But again, mm-hmm. just mainly on the surface. You know, one of the things that the article brought up, Ephraim, was the fact that, you know, when we look at the, the, the tuna sashimi, which is, I guess, the preferred fish for some to be used, there's there, it's usually a beautiful red color and that red color isn't necessarily natural to the sushi. It's actually uh, a, a red dye that is developed through carmine, which is basically something that they get from crushed beetles. And that is something yeah. which allows that color to happen. So, is it possible, you know, that although, you know, hopefully it's not carmine, because if it's carmine, the fish is, and the fish will be tray for other reasons, you know, but right. could, 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 could some sort of, some sort of dye coloring, whether it's carmine or something else, help preserve the fish more than normal?
1: Generally speaking, colors are not going to preserve your fish more than normal, but that is an interesting. Topic There is a lot of fraud in in the fish industry, whether it's you know fillets of tilapia being shipped from China that are actually catfish, or whether it's tuna being imported from China that's actually shark or our dolphins, unfortunately, sometimes dolphins, yeah. dolphins, marlin, um, sailfish, and so, uh, r- really anything that can kind of, kind of has that reddish flesh and look like tuna. and when it comes to dyeing the the flesh of the fish with carmine which is as you mentioned uh, extracted from cochineal beetles uh, and it's not kosher but is a semi-common food dye red food dye um whether it's that or whether it's a kosher dye either way you're being cheated <laughs> because you're being you're being either you're being tricked and it's not actually tuna or in the kosher situation it's it's tuna but it's light tuna and they want it to look red. So it's kosher and still tuna, but you're still being tricked. <laughs>
0: uh, it, but it doesn't help necessarily the dye in terms of letting it stay out on the table any longer. It shouldn't. You know, we, I talked about the tuna, but of course the other item that gets into uh, sushi is this crab substitute, which my wife buys and and we keep it in the freezer and then, you know, she takes it out and defrosts a little bit and she makes our sushi with it. Talk a little bit about that that crab substitute. What is it? And are there any yeah. issues of using it? So
1: imitation crab, also known as kani, which I believe is Japanese, is a very interesting product. It's made, first of all, out of pollock, which is a white ocean fish, white fleshed ocean fish. And there is a very interesting chemical that's used in its production called transglutaminase or what some of our listeners might know as meat glue. And basically what meat glue does or transglutaminase does, because there have technically have been different types of meat glue throughout history, what transglutaminase does is without getting too much into the chemistry of it, it's an enzyme that links proteins together. So you can take something that's ground up meat and add this transglutaminase enzyme to it. And it will look after it's cooked like a solid piece of meat, like a a steak. And it's used in the production of mock crab and in the production of mock shrimp. But it's very interesting. The way they do it for mock crab is they sort of pulverize this raw white fish, pollock, and they mix in ice chips and some seasoning Hmm. and... Then they add this transglutaminase enzyme, and they put it through a machine that sheets it out into these long, really, really thin sheets and one layer they also color red and then what they do is is they roll up the sheet of after it sets a little bit, they roll up the sheet, presumably after it's cooked, and then wrap it in one layer of red pollock paste, and that's how you get that layered that layered crab stick.
0: Hmm. You you realize, Frime, Anybody listening now is, is is almost going to swear off its use. <laughs> you have you have lifted up the curtain on its production <laughs> in a way that we we thought it was just some sort of like kosher version of crab that they at the freeze. Yeah. Uh, it, it sounds now that they better freeze it because this thing ain't going to stay together, you know, the way it is. If you break
1: it down, it is just about all fish and you know in, in in japan kani i'm pretty sure just means a paste like a, a
0: meat. well why paste. would if if, if, if uh, unless you have an aversion is it for people who are allergic to crab do they create this for the kosher market it must be that there was it must be there might be people who you know crab just didn't agree with them because it's supposed to tr- it's supposed to simulate the taste of crab right Right, and it's interesting because they in
1: you know Japanese cuisine, there's all different types of kanis and not just made out of fish. I mean, there's pork kanis and there's different meat kanis. Ultimately, it is a cost-saving thing. You know, you're not always going to have something with a, that that pleasant texture um, available. Crab is more much more expensive than mock crab for a reason, and the it was absolutely not driven by the kosher market it's just sort of convenient that it's very easy to make kosher Mm -hmm. because the process is generally speaking for mock crab is uh generally speaking pretty much kosher as opposed to all the some of the other kinds of canis which are made out of uh, various meats but generally speaking transglutaminase Mm -hmm. is part of it
0: what is the reason why fry it's only available in the frozen form you know, I guess because <laughs> there's such a, a small demand for it. Why well, is it? Yeah, there... I mean, it's only
1: available in the frozen form because we don't live in Japan. <laughs> uh, because um, mo-
0: most of it is imported, right? It's mostly imported from there's not there's not enough of a of a demand for it here for it to be produced in a way that it's going to come to our supermarkets in a sort of fresh way at all.
1: Exactly. And... I mean, it it has sort of cemented itself as a key ingredient for a very specific food. Whereas in Japan, these types of foods are very common in everyday eating. It's not just for a once-a-month sushi night, mm-hmm. um, you know. Yeah. And when I say once-a-month sushi night, I feel like some of the listeners might say, "Well, what do you mean? I eat sushi all the time." But how often do you make your own sushi? <laughs> very yeah. few people in the U.S. make their own sushi every day. Yeah. And if yeah. everybody did, then you definitely could get it fresh.
0: You know, we we've talked about the fish, but we haven't really talked about the rice and the the rice. For people like my daughter, even for myself is really, well, that's, that's the thing that fills you up. That's the thing that in a way makes it a meal. It's not sushi without the rice. Uh, now obviously, you know, sushi rice is, 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 is very, the process for producing it, you know, is quite sophisticated. And there are very important steps that need to be done in order for it to be uh, properly, to, to be proper sushi rice to be used. Uh, but there's also the rice vinegar. That I think all sushi has, uh, and can you, you know, I want to go back again to you know this business of it sitting sitting out or sitting in your fridge. Does the rice vinegar somehow affect the rice and the fish that it's that's that's that is stuffed inside of it?
1: Vinegars have a low pH; they're acidic, and things with a very low pH and help preserve other foods, but. With the rice, and and as you mentioned, right, it's not sushi without the rice. Sushi is actually refers to the process of vinegaring the rice. You know, if you soaked little pieces of raw fish in rice wine vinegar for a day, you would drastically lengthen the amount of time that they would, it would stay fresh for because fish is something that spoils very quickly. Rice, on the other hand, doesn't spoil quite as quickly. So the fact that the rice is vinegared probably and ultimately does not have a very meaningful effect on the longevity. Mm
0: of uh, the freshness so, of that rice so the most the reason why the rice vinegar is so important is to sort of let the to allow the the rice to taste better i guess exactly it's really
1: a flavor thing
0: mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily affect the fish that it's <laughs> that it's touching the again the article you know indicates that of course the rice vinegar is made from from sometimes from wine and other things like that so that's part of the reason why the kosher supervisors are making sure that uh, any sort of rice vinegar that's being used is it's only, you know, something that is is, is not an issue and, and especially on Pesach and other places when where we know the vinegar, if the vinegar comes from grain, you know, you basically are, uh, you're going to have a situation of hummets. You asked me before we off pod about the bracha on 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 sushi.
1: Right. Yeah, the, the bracha. And, you know, I feel like sometimes people say, oh, you're a food scientist and you're and you're from you should know all the answers to all of my food related questions. And I, I've gotten a few times, you know, what is the best way to make a bracha on sushi? Do I say mizono on it because, you know, rice is the ecar? Do I say shahakul on it because the fish is the more expensive thing? Mm. You know, what do I do? And then also, I mean, another thing that people ask me is, are there issues with, it's a less common question, but are there issues when it comes to rice wine vinegar with Bishalakum? Because, there I mean, presumably there is with rice, but what about rice wine wine vinegar?
0: yeah well, we know you know as 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 the article makes clear that the the bishal knockri on the rice doesn't apply because of how uncooked it is uh before you know before it gets to us mm-hmm. it's in a state where uh the cooking really you know although there is there is some sort of i guess steaming it or something that occurs uh i I don't think there's a, a bishal nohri issue the interesting Problem about the bracha? Again, you always go with the betufa. What is what is what is the main purpose here? I think for for most people, if you would ask them straight off, I mean, they're not eating rice, right? You know, this is this is a, a means. The, the rice is what's is the vehicle for giving you that fish and other vegetables that are are, are, are with it. Fish, the sauce, and everything else. So. It would seem that the rice here, uh, sh- you know, Musko would say it's not. I know that the Postkin, when they've spoken about it, my Rebbe of Heinemann and others have said that the rice is khoshev, you know, the rice, because uh, you don't want to eat it unless it's within, you know, Rabbi Heinemann's point, is, I think, needs to be considered very strongly that you seem to want it, you want the rice as well. So, but you don't want the rice itself but on the other hand you just don't want the little piece of fish either So servheiman basically calls it you know 50-50 and reiman feels that you should make a broch on both and 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 he it's it's not going to win you any uh, style points Rav Heidemann actually feels that when you eat that first piece of sushi you should probably take it apart and you should probably eat a little bit of the rice and make amazonas on the rice because that bracha comes first and then make a bracha of shahakal. He does say, however, that the vegetables are clearly tofu. Um, now here I go back to my daughter again. My daughter's sushi though, she specifically wants the ones with the vegetables, whether it's avocado or California roll, uh, cucumbers or whatever it is. I would say if, if you go with Raphaim and Svara that. You know, for people like my daughter, people that are vegetarians, you probably also would have to make two bruchas. Uh Again, if with my muskourishon, you know, I would make, you know, to me, uh, it, it would seem to me that this is just a, a means to get the, uh, you know, again, obviously the rice is tasty. It isn't just uh, a, a napkin. You know, I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's. Heineman's Zeitz is a good call. But if I'd have to be stuck to the wall and you wouldn't be able to do it, and you say, which, is it one brocha or two? I oh, don't know. You know, my guts tell me it's one brocha and it's probably the stuff that's inside. And the you know, the just like the nori is really just keeps this thing together, the rice happens to keep it together. It's a very good thing to keep it together. But it, remember, rice is not the same type of masonous, um as the hamishas aminim. Rice is not from the hamishas aminim. It has a brocha because it happens to be able to replicate the same nutritional power in some ways as 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 things that come from the from the five basic bread grains. But the five basic bread grains, there you have, oh, I have Mizonos in there. Rice does not have that same significance. It's koshyeshpa mechmeshamina in the brochas Bourbon and Mizonos. Rice, despite its Mizonosbro, is not. Therefore, you know, I'd be comfortable, you know, making a shako on it. But you know, I bow to my Rebbe. Well my follow-up
1: question, if I may, to that is how much room is there in Hilchos Brachos for customization to an individual? You know, in this case, the customization could be well. What's your ichor here? Well, I, whereas, I think
0: I, 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 let me stop you for a second. Prime quite a bit. Uh, we know, in, in fact, the, the question about if you have chloviv, which food is more to you in order to make the bracha? Uh There's a Aposkim if you have a, a table where you have let's say, oranges and dates, and you happen to be an orange lover, many posts can hold that even though normally Shiva Haminim should trump everything, Chaviv even beats that. And therefore, you'd make the bracha on on the eights on the orange and pater. But that's you. If there's somebody else, well, it's sort of a toss-up. Oh, go with the Shiva Haminim. So you see that oh, the, the idea of Chaviv, what's Chaviv to you? We have to remember, you now, are are a very intensely personal thing it's you sustaining yourself with the bounty of god and recognizing how god is doing that for you shachyanu obviously is, is the same thing you know uh, brocha on a, on a food that you don't care for makes no sense yeah shachyanu of course is based on what you like and the same thing really is true in, in, in certain ways about, like I said, Nojos Brojos. and I think the same thing is true about what's iker and tafel. Now sometimes you're gonna, we do have an idea of daito you know, sometimes, but I think here it isn't so weird, and you know, it's not like it is. It's not like uh, there's enough vegetarians out there. There's enough people who love vegetables, uh, and especially I think the 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 care that and we've you know we've talked about the, the rice and the fish. It's very important to have fresh vegetables, too, uh, in your sushi. And I think, uh, you know, I assume the the Japanese chefs uh, make sure that the, the avocados and the other things that they're cutting up and they're putting in there are, are, are high grade. Am I wrong um, about that?
1: No, absolutely. And, you know, sushi falls into this category of cuisine that is minimalistic, where the quality of each of the individual ingredients gets drastically amplified. So if you have a dish with 50 ingredients, you don't worry as much about, you know, using the best version of every Mm. single one of those. But if you make a sushi roll and you use really good cucumbers versus mediocre cucumbers, it actually makes a big difference. And, you know, that's part of why, and we were also speaking about this off pod, that's part of why sushi is never frozen. Anything like any fresh vegetable that you're planning on eating raw, if you freeze it, it's going to be different once it's defrosted. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, they do have things called IQF or individually quick frozen vegetables, which retain a lot more of the characteristics of the fresh vegetable than, as we mentioned on the previous podcast, than something that would be frozen slowly in your freezer, which isn't as cold. But nonetheless, the quality and texture is going to be quite different with fresh, raw vegetables if you freeze them and if you don't.
0: Yeah, you know, the other thing which I think needs to be talked about is the incredible cost, you know, of, of a roll. You know, you sort of have like, you know, six... Six rolls of rice. Oh, that'll be six ninety-five. What? Right? No, right. The, the amount of material and 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 I don't. I tell you, I buy for my daughter all the time whenever we go to Lakewood or Muncie or any place where where we we, we run into a, a grocery a kosher grocery that they have fresh sushi, and I'll buy it for her because I know much she likes it. But it is very expensive in terms of you know the the, the cost per ounce. And it's it's incredible. I think you know we talked about its entrance into the into the into the Jewish world. We also I think you have to say yeah, and, and 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 Jews, and I guess anybody who's I, I can't believe the price is that different. Consumers' willingness to really pay that much money, I, I guess it speaks to how unique and 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 how satisfying it is for people.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I think it's twofold. You know, first of all, I think in, in the U.S. and in a lot of countries, sushi still has this sort of intriguing foreign curiosity to it that makes I mean, it's exotic and people, even even though it's everywhere, it still has maintained this um, exoticness.
0: Sure. And and we, t- you know, and, and again, I think there's this whole subculture of, you know, of, of Japanese immigrants who are able to uh, get jobs in all these kosher stores. Yeah is there is there something unique i mean is that just like to get the guy to pay the extra money because look uh, look that's a japanese guy who's doing that right maybe look at the japanese guy that's making it is is that some sort of like it's almost like racial baiting almost like or or is there something that they know that somehow there's some secrets of production that somehow the japanese have that we don't have
1: well what you're commonly see in a lot of different cultures is something that's culturally significant will become ceremonial. And there will be aspects of the way that it's made or the way that it's done that are not strictly necessary. And in Japan, um, they make a pretty big deal out of sushi to the extent that to become a sushi chef, you have to go to a specific school for years. And so even just multiple years just to learn how to make the rice. And that sort of ceremonial aspect of, of the process has is another thing that i think has has made people assume you know think that it's worth worth that price and also made people tend to want a japanese person making their sushi because of how seriously they take sushi making in japan but you know you you do also see for really any kind of of food you know people will say like well i want an italian chef cooking my italian food i want and you'll see that with a lot of different types of cuisines but i think it's even more so when it comes to something like sushi again, because of how seriously they take it in Japan.
0: See my wife, when she makes it, she makes it on this special bamboo rolling mat, which again, sort of, as you say, like ties into the fact that this is a food that is ancient, ancient and still so fresh and, and, and incredible. So it has a, uh, it has that, it has that mystique, you know, segueing off of what you were saying about, you know, I want the Italian chef. I want the Italian guy, you know, throwing the pizza up. like. (laughs) <laughs> and catching it and 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 rolling the dough. There's a way that the Italians know how to make pizza that nobody else knows. Yeah, you know, I, I read a, a book a number of years ago, and it was a it was a book that was based on you know evolutionary theory. And you know, it's a, it's I don't remember the title, but I remember the idea, and it stuck with me that certain types of plants, certain types of vegetables, certain types of of grains developed in, in in various parts of the globe in in an interdependence with the humans that were eating them the humans that 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 found themselves after the tower of Babel or wherever it was found themselves in that space and this plant and this food was really over years which we call let's call that that evolutionary arc they ended up being, it ended up being the proper food for them. The, the, as we know, the, the sort of the prime directive of every living thing is to keep living, is to, is to recreate itself, is to push itself into the future. And whether, you know, the, 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 the sort of ingrained knowledge of the plants was to make themselves attractive for the humans who would therefore eat them and plant more of them. And that would become this dominant a plant I mean again this is you know evolutionary theory 101 applied to uh, the plant world but what was the under point of this is that therefore there's a a, a connection in the the way your stomach takes in food the the juices that uh, that that work in your digestive system to be able to to consume this and make it part of your body and make yourself healthy with it is unique to where you were from. Now, with globalization and the Industrial Revolution, of course, kicks this off and the movement of, let's say, so many Japanese immigrants, to the United States, Italian immigrants, to the United States, the United States in general, being a place that was so open to so many different types of persons bringing their cuisines and diets here, and then you know, opening restaurants or and 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 mixing in with what's I don't know if they're again not the the native population. Of course, was from mostly was was the whites from Europe, but they end up now mm, now you know, wanting to have Tex-Mex. You know, coming from uh, the southern part of the country from Mexico and and, and on south, uh, the type of sharp jalapenos and other type of things that and chili. Sushi coming from Japan. And I'm sure there's a host of other foods, you know, that you know I'm sure there's a number of these Japanese immigrants that are now eating goulash and borscht <laughs> because, mm. you know, they like going to the Russian tea room. And this author was saying that this might not be a healthy phenomena as much as, oh, look, look how we've been able to retain the best of all these worlds. And look, it's almost like a, a, a Disneyland of all different types of foods. It might actually be problematic. Uh, We aren't from the European stock that we come from. Let's say you know the 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 Eastern European stock that we come from, or the Northern European stock, wherever it is. Our 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 systems, despite the 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 couple of hundred years that we've been here, still aren't ready uh, to have these type of jungle type foods or foods from you know from the Orient.
1: Yeah, and it's it's an interesting point, and not really something you know I would have considered, but. When I think about it, it reminds me of of another topic which is very related, and that is the human microbiome and that's something that there's been a lot of research about in in recent years that has actually shown that the microbiome the bacteria that colonize your colon and the strains of bacteria, the specific ones, has a lot more of an effect on human beings than we think, and you know. Ultimately, which bacteria colonize your colon is determined mostly by what you eat. And it could very well be that over a long period of history, there are certain bacteria cocktails, if you will, that when colonizing someone's colon just sort of work better with certain genetic combinations so that people from Japan do Better health-wise when they have a microbiome more in line with the Japanese diet, that could very well be the case. And you know, you can apply that to, to people of, of European descent. It would it would be very interesting to see a study
0: look into that. I don't know if they're uh, well. People if, have if FDU, has, people but. for years have bandied about the Mediterranean diet, and they've talked about the longevity of persons from Italy and or people near the the Mediterranean Sea. And they've talked about how we could just transplant that and, and, and have you know somebody who comes from Ireland or somebody who comes from Eastern Europe just adapt that diet and that'll work for them. I think based on what we're both saying, it might not be working. <laughs> and, and it could be, you know, there's a reason why the people who have lived in this area and who come from that area who can trace their, you know, their genetics line from that area of the world that the foods that were present there work for them. The vegetables and foods that work there, but you know, I, where it might not be true for us. You know, we I talked about the jalapenos before, and you know, my, my my family can't believe that I would ever want to have a jalapeno potato chip, and 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 you know, my wife will say, you know, I you know, I, I can't understand why people want to have, people want to have spicy food, and I remember reading in that in, in that book, I believe that. That spicy food, there's an allure to it, not just that it's something unique and different, but it actually sort of like it's a way to 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 generate the adrenaline excitement. You know, before you dip that chip, you know that there's going to be a kick there. And there's like something, you know, it's just pushing you because it's not like it's not that non-spicy food doesn't have any taste to it once it reaches i think over the as we the border of being spicy you know you wonder what is it that, that that what's the appeal and i think that's i think that's part of it yeah and
1: you know it's an interesting phenomenon particularly because capsaicin the chemical in hot peppers that we recognize as hot or spicy quite literally stimulates both pain and heat receptors in your body which is why people call it hot because it really can feel hot and painful and that that should be something that attracts people to food first of all is interesting and i think it's for a few different reasons you know there is that macho component to it like let's you know let me show everybody what i can uh and then you know not not for everyone but sometimes let me show everyone what i can what i can do what the the, pain that i can tolerate the
0: hot chili eating contest that you have at the state at at the state fairs yeah And how much Tabasco, I mean, look look, we'll we'll call Tabasco is one of the number one products in the world. Of course, just a little bit of Tabasco, right? (laughs) Right. I remember in I remember in Yeshiva, by the way, you know, again, this just goes to show you how weird things were. You know, the yeshiva did not give ketchup or condiments, basically. I don't know why. So people had to go to the town and buy them. So when you, you would go to wash in my yeshiva in Baltimore, there was a ledge right by the washing station. And on that ledge was a whole line of ketchups <laughs> and condiments with people's names on it. You know, and, and then you would have <laughs> Mach Gomer. No, don't take this. Yeah. Everybody's ketchup with a name on it. This way, you, you know, where you can get the ketchup. And I remember there was like one bottle of Tabasco, right? I remember <laughs> asking this fellow, this uh, rebuke squawk about, yeah, I said, you know, what's going on with this? Everybody's got ketchup. No? He says, you know what? <laughs> ketchup drown stuff. Tabasco, that's already something special. And, it, uh, and in small amounts, I mean, it, can
1: give have somewhat of a similar effect that salt does, in that it, you know, it's not the flavor of it that you're looking for, but it's how it affects the overall flavor. It it can slightly enhance flavors, and everyone has a can have a different tolerance to hot things too. You know, if you grew up eating very hot foods, you can tolerate it, and you actually appreciate the effect that it has on on uh on food. It's also good, you know, if you have a very hot food, it 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 helps you not gain weight if all of your food is very spicy <laughs> oh, you're right. you can't Jewish. eat
0: too much. That's no, that's a very good point. You know, getting back to sushi for a minute, I think, you know, we talked about its price and how popular it is. When I think about sushi becoming, you know, the Jewish food, and I look at again about Chazal, I mentioned this last week as well, you know, chazal's sense of what eating was you look at the Gemara and Shabbos about how long meals were supposed to last and how you have, you know, you can't, you know, you have to dab a beforehand because a meal will last and it's long. Even when we talk about not just that they used to sit on couches, meals took time. It, it took time to prepare and, 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 and a meal was something, you know, an hour. No, of course not. a, a, a lunch would take a couple of hours and it was people took their time. Whether it was the wine they were going to drink, you know, the the speed of of, of how they chewed and and even you know and, and they didn't necessarily make conversation. The Gemara says, Ain't masikan basuda. <laughs> they actually did not talk that much. They felt it was a sakana, but they ate slow. And it wasn't that they were obese, they just ate much slower. I think, you know, when we talk about fast food, it, what fast food means, of course, was the food scientists and others who came up with ways to be able to to order a hamburger and have it ready in, in two minutes, right? You know, mm-hmm. fast. Now, the Jewish version of it goes a little <laughs> bit slower. But it's mm-hmm. the food itself, you know, it wasn't necessarily meant to be eaten fast, but I think that's part of the mentality. Uh, but hamburger and a French fries, you could sit there for a while and and chew it and enjoy it. And I think there are people that still do. It doesn't have to be steak mm-hmm. to take its time. Uh, you know, a person could... But Even a hot dog at a at a at the ballpark, it doesn't have to be wolfed down. But I, right. I, I get this idea with sushi, and getting back to it, maybe I'm I'm just got sushi in my brain so much. But I, right. I I I don't see people, you know, taking their time with sushi. You put five or six of these slices, I guess that's what you call them, of the of of the maki, and within a, <laughs> as soon as you. As soon as you dip it in whatever type of uh, material it is, whether it's Worcestershire sauce or, or soy sauce or whatever it is, I mean, that plate's going to be gone quickly. Um, I don't, I don't see people luxuriously like savoring this food. It seems to be really a fast food. Am I, and I wonder if that is, you know, to be, to be, as you said before, to get full quickly. It's not necessarily a healthy thing, is it?
1: No, and when you get full very quickly, when you eat a lot of food very quickly, you know it takes time for your body to register how full it is, which is why people you know will often advise if you've eaten enough food and and you want and you're still hungry, wait twenty minutes and see if you're still hungry because it kind of takes your body some time to register. And when you eat very quickly, it makes it even harder. But as fast foods go, sushi would definitely be in in the uh, in the healthier category. You know, the fresh vegetables, the it's not fried, um, you know, the, doesn't have high levels of saturated fat, and most most fast foods definitely tend
0: to. Mm-hmm. So even though I think one of the reasons it's become a favorite is because how quickly you can eat it, you know, we're all multitasking, and, okay, let's have some sushi, yeah. and, okay, I'll see you later. It's, I guess we should ultimately say that uh, it, it, it might have ne- elbowed out the gefilte fish, the schmaltz herring, the chopped liver, But probably we're, you know, despite the fact that we we aren't from oriental extraction, it probably still is healthier than all that other stuff has been.
1: Yeah, because the the oriental extraction point is interesting and it would be definitely worth studying, but we have plenty of studies already that show how high levels of saturated fat in your diet aren't healthy, eating a lot of fried food isn't healthy. That we already know. And so I I think um, where things stand, probably if you're going to consider talking about fast food, a cheeseburger and fries and a milkshake, or you're going to talk about sushi, I definitely think sushi is uh, is the healthier way to go. And part of the reason why people eat it so fast is because, you know, we're, we're eating a cultural food from another culture and we're taught, well, the Japanese way of eating it is to eat each piece in one bite. You know, we're, people are always chastised for taking multiple bites out of one piece of sushi. And when there are only eight pieces of sushi in a roll, eight bites later and it's gone.
0: I feel sort of like we are this filling that is surrounded by the nori and the rice. We've really done a, a super deep dive, you know, into this food that's really has has knocked has knocked the wasabi off of everyone. <laughs> well, Prime, I know we we've just started on this food science odyssey, but I've already gotten a number of wonderful responses of people who said, "Oh, that's a great idea, Blake Forest. So, let's a- and I appeal to our listeners out there. uh, If there is a food that you'd like to talk about, obviously, uh, in some way from a food science perspective, I guess, sprinkled with a little bit of halachic understanding, then please let us know about it. You can uh, email me, of course, at robkiv at gmail, ravkiv at gmail.com. And we will definitely take it up because I know one thing that, uh, a freim schachter is not afraid of any food challenge so far i mean he's he's ready to step up to the literal plate <laughs> <laughs> and and deal with anything and take it from its nuts and bolts from its ion, from its atoms and smallest parts to the sociological effect that having this food is so bring it on yeah so as we said stay hungry for for knowledge and Now, if you are what you eat, then to paraphrase an old saying, eater, know thyself. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.